We are in Hebrews 13 for the last time in, in perhaps many years to come. I don't know when I'll get back to Hebrews, probably after I've finished Revelation again and fixed everything I got wrong there. The, the pattern of New Testament books, the majority of them, and, and um, certainly Paul's letters and, and others as well, is to begin with doctrine and then move to application. Um, the Old Testament pattern, I think, is, is seen, and you, you begin with the application. You begin with the commands, and then in the process of giving the commands in the Old Testament, the Lord reveals the doctrines that are there. We see that, I think, actually depicted in the Sabbath. The Old Testament Sabbath was the, the last day of the week. It was the seventh day. You work six days, and after working, you come to rest. The New Testament pattern is to begin with rest and then to work the next six days because you've come into the rest of Christ. So the last chapter or two of Hebrews is the specific application of the doctrines that have been given in the book of Hebrews. And we began last week with some final instructions, and it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating... Oh, you just jumped right ahead. It's okay. It did it by itself. There is no other slide. That's all I got? Really? Yes. Is it recording? Testing one, two. Got a little green light up there? Yep. Oh, okay, well, my bad. Anyway, the, the, the sermon title was Final Instructions Part 2, which is so engaging that it just grips the imagination. Um, what Hebrews closes with is an appeal to maturity. It appeals to us to be spiritually mature and to grow in maturity. Spiritual maturity is, is the aim of all Scripture. Colossians 1.28 says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that's the goal of all teaching. It's the goal ultimately of all ministry is that believers would grow up in Christ into the fullness of, of Christ, it says in Ephesians 4. In, uh, in Hebrews 6 Many months ago, we saw that there are quite a few people who get trapped in immaturity. And he says there that we need, to, uh, we need to be able to move on from the elementary doctrine of Christ and repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of, dead, of the dead, and eternal judgment. The text isn't saying that these doctrines are immature. These doctrines are sound and they're profound. What he's saying is that the people who need to hear those things over and over and over again and are never able to get beyond them are immature, and that's a bad place to be. We need to grow in Christ. We need to press on to maturity. What does that mean? Well, it means many things, but we're going to see three areas here, beginning with the one that's on the screen, which is to accept the world's reproach. Looking at verse 10, he says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. 
Let's go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. What what does that mean? Well, we begin with the reproach Jesus endured. He was rejected. He was hated. He was mocked. He was abused. He was cursed. He was marginalized. He was dismissed. He was lied about. He was insulted by the world. He was, in essence, shoved outside the gate, outside the camp. He was told by the leaders of Israel and by the vast majority of the people in Israel at the time, you're not welcome here. You have no place here. He didn't fight that. He submitted himself to it. He says to his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. The world did everything that it could do to shame Jesus. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And then he says to us, you join me in that. You accept the reproach that I have borne for you. In a sense, Jesus bore our reproach before the Father on the cross so that having been saved by him, having been born again, we can bear his reproach in our resurrected life. We're not to hide. We're not to conceal ourselves or, or, or pretend that we aren't Christians. We're not to hope that we aren't discovered and then just grudgingly admit that we're Christians if we are. We're to boldly, gladly go to him outside the camp, outside the gate where the world has banished him. That's kind of a grim reality. Adulthood is often grim. We often have to do things that are difficult and unpleasant. We often have to simply take care of others, take care of ourselves, face trials, face heartache, and keep going. Most of us don't have the the, the ability to simply stop when life gets hard. That's a a childlike thing, and that's okay. That's how God has designed children. That's how he has made them, and he's made us as parents and grandparents and more to take care of them. The aim is that as our children grow up and as we grow up, that we would face these difficult things. But I want to encourage you that we lose nothing here. We have two incredible blessings that are beyond description, really. The first is found in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, as you look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, and and, uh, he, he speaks here of the high priest in verse 11, and so he's speaking here of the, the Day of Atonement and the sacrifices that are offered. The blood of the sacrifice was brought by the high priest into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant served as an altar. And it's the grandest altar Israel could have ever known. The bodies of the animals that provided the blood were, were burned outside the camp. Some of the animals, some parts of the animals were burned on the altar, but the carcass, the entrails, the bones, all of that was burned outside the camp. It was unclean. It was filthy. It was unworthy. 
We'll take the blood. We don't want anything else. And only the high priest could approach that altar. But we are told that we are rich beyond compare because we have an altar that no high priest is permitted to eat at. That is, we have Christ. We have his cross. We have his life. We have the gospel. No Jewish high priest, by virtue of being a high priest, had access to Jesus Christ. Not one. The only way that they could come and and eat from the altar that we eat from is to be in Christ, which, which means to give up all of the standing that they have. If we were going to do communion at the end of the service, we would be coming to eat, but in, in eating the bread and drinking the cup, we're not eating Christ. We're not drinking his blood. We are depicting his sacrifice, and we're depicting how we come into him, which is by faith. In John 6, when Jesus talks about eating his body, drinking his blood, what he means is believing. He means putting our faith in him. We have an altar. The second thing that we have is a city. Now, we have no lasting city on earth, verse 14 says. We don't have a place on earth that we can call our own, that, that we will never lose, that, that is ours permanently and is locked down. We don't have that. What we have is a city to come. That's the city that's already been described in Hebrews 11 and 12. Hebrews 11.10 says it's the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. 11.16 says that it's a better country, a heavenly one, a city prepared for us by God. And 12.22 says it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the city that we have. So we don't need a lasting city on earth. We have a city to come. Now, it's possible that some would think that Jesus had a distinct advantage because he begins, Philippians says, in the form of God. He begins as God, and then he humbles himself and becomes a man and becomes a servant and yields himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. But he does that knowing that he will again be exalted to glory. So Jesus begins glorious. He accepts for a brief time the, the, uh, the shame and the reproach and uh, the, 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 the being downcast and lowly as a servant. But then he's going to go back to this exalted position. And so people will say, but he had all of this, so he just gave it up for a brief time and he gets it all back. It, it, it would be like Bill Gates forgetting his wallet and having to borrow a dollar from you to get a Coke at McDonald's. He's going right back into his incredible wealth, even though at this very moment he doesn't have that wealth. What we need to remember is that we also have a city to come and that what we are heading for is exactly what Jesus, as the resurrected, glorified man, is going to. We don't receive the glory of God. Jesus returned to the glory of God that he had laid aside But he also, as a glorified man, goes as the firstfruits, as the firstborn from among the dead. We have that. So we lose nothing. And in fact, to put it bluntly, who cares what the world thinks of us? We have been joined to our Savior. We have been forgiven for our sins. 
we gladly bear his reproach because we give up nothing on earth in doing that. So the first aspect of maturity is to bear the reproach of Christ, which is actually a reasonable thing to do because of the blessings that we have. The second thing that we do is to do do Jesus' work. Verses 15 and 16 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What did Jesus come to do? In basic terms, he explains in the Gospels, he came to glorify the Father and to serve his people. He came to glorify God and to serve his people. That's what we're being called to do. We are being called to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise and to not neglect doing good and sharing what we have. So let's talk for a moment about glorifying God. Jesus says in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, accomplished the work you gave me to do. And he calls us to live for the exact same purpose. So we see in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we're to do it for the glory of God, to exist for his glory. And we see here in Hebrews that our words are part of that. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now, where does maturity come in with this? The maturity comes in in that little word, continually. That little word, continually. Um, we, we tried for, for several years to conceive before Kevin was conceived. And it was just explosive joy. When Linda got pregnant with Sarah, we have that return to just wondrous joy. And then because of my cancer, we were told we were done having children. The Lord gave us grace seven years after uh, Sarah was born. And, and again, there's this explosive joy. And, and eight years ago now or so, not, close to nine, when, uh, when we sat in the Mexican restaurant out in Neely and our daughter Sarah said uh, they were getting ready to go to Florida. And she said, yeah, we're going to go to Disney World, but I won't be able to go on any roller coasters. And dummy me, I said, why? She says, because you can't go on them when you're pregnant. And I burst out into tears. You've got this explosion of joy. And then Rex, it's like, yay! And then Evie, it's like, yay! And then Iris, it's like, yay! Because you kind of get used to them coming. But there's this just wondrous experience that you have as, as a grandparent. Everybody has those moments of exploding into joy and giving praise to God. Where does the maturity come in? It comes in with continually offering up praise to God. Continually offering up praise to God. The blessings of God so greatly exceed the circumstances of our lives that there's never a moment God doesn't deserve our praise. There's never a moment that he isn't worthy. And what about when we face those really hard times, those crushing circumstances, it's in those moments that our sacrifice or our praise becomes a sacrifice of praise. We're, we're not offering praise to the Lord because we are pleased, but because he is worthy. And that grounds us, it roots us 
in what's important. In those moments, when we vocally praise him, we're declaring that his glory never fades. Jesus came to glorify his name, and he did. We're called to glorify his name continually. And the second, we are to serve God's people, as Jesus did. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, the Hebrews were not strangers to doing good and sharing with others. Hebrews 6.10 says, uh, the writer says to them, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. So back in chapter 6, he says, you've been serving in the past, and you're serving now. Why would he need to say, don't neglect serving? Don't neglect doing good and sharing what you have. Because even faithful people get tired. Even faithful people get weary. The first few times you do something, there's, there's this excitement, this thrill. But the more you do it, the more it becomes habitual, the less it is new. And it takes discipline to, to keep going. For the, for the first time in I don't know how many years, I got up this morning. Uh, time changed, so we're up you know, 4.30, normal time, 3.30 this morning. But our bodies are saying it's 4.30 and we're up early anyway, so that's no big deal. Just get up, get dressed, make coffee, read do some studying, eventually load stuff, come to the mission, go up. I get to Creighton, and I realize I'm wearing blue jeans instead of my black trousers. And it's like, (laughs) I neglected. I just got tired. It just slipped my mind. Other things got in the way. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. Now, here's, here's kind of a thing. Here's kind of a check. If our primary motivation for serving others is how we feel when we serve or how we feel about their need, then if our feelings change, we've got a problem. But if our primary motivation in serving others is the glory of God and doing good for them, it's going to be much easier to remember what we need to do. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. That's the maturity part. That's the adult part. That's the grown-up part. So we've, we've seen that maturity means gladly bearing the reproach of Christ and, uh, and continuing being faithful to do the work of God. Maturity also means being led and governed by the Lord Jesus. We submit to the Lord. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this is one of the most provocative statements in Scripture. The the whole idea that we would obey leaders, that we would obey a pastor, obey elders, is something that a, a lot of people just flat out refuse. They just reject it. They just rebel. I won't do that. And that's understandable because ultimately all sin is rebellion against authority. It's rebellion against the authority of God. We also rebel against government. We rebel against parents. Our country was born in rebellion. So rebellion is just kind of our, our home court. That's where we're most comfortable. Now, scripture says, without apology, obey your leaders and submit to them. 
But we've got to understand these words in the context of Scripture, in the context of what is intended. No human leader has any inherent authority. No human leader in the church has inherent authority, ordained authority. No pastor or elder has personal authority. It doesn't exist. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is Lord of his church. He is the king. He is the chief shepherd. He gave us the scriptures as his authoritative word of truth and instruction and revelation. So Jesus is Lord. He gives us his word as the perfect expression of his will and his intention and desire for us. And then to ensure that we know his word, he places men in the church to serve as pastor, elder, overseers. The primary job of pastors and elders is to proclaim and teach the word of God, which is the word of the Lord of the church. So Paul speaks very strongly to to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I charge you. Uh, There's no stronger ordination in in Scripture. There's no stronger burden that's ever placed on anybody in Scripture than to say, I charge you. And he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. So he's saying, as I charge you, God the Father and God the Son are the witnesses. So you can't say, yeah, but nobody else heard that. Jesus is to judge the living and the dead, just a reminder that there's judgment. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach, which means to announce or proclaim or make known the word, and given the enormous weight of the charge and the witnesses, the positive statement is preach the word, the negative implication is don't preach anything else. Be ready in season and out of season. That is, whether it's popular or not, whether it's welcome or not, whether it's appreciated or not. Reprove, which means to identify sin. Rebuke, which means to rebuke those committing that sin. And exhort, encouraging people to faithfulness in Christ and repentance and confession and endurance. With complete patience and teaching, meaning for the rest of your life. The pastor's role, the elder's role is to teach the church everything that Jesus has given the church in the written word. That's how they take care of our souls. My primary means of taking care of your souls is to tell you what your Lord wants you to know, which I don't get from dreams. I don't get from my imagination. I get from a strict, boring, mundane examination of his word. I find his word to be extraordinarily thrilling. It's not boring to me. But there's no creativity in sermon preparation. It's the end of creativity. All my creativity is over here on the piano. I step over to my desk to do sermon preparation. There's no creativity. I'm locked and bound into what the Lord has given us. And so I, I want to repeat this. The church is not under the authority of human leaders. It is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who has spoken clearly in his word and then given human leaders the heavy responsibility of faithfully, accurately delivering his word and only his word for the sake of our growth. Jesus is the Lord. He's given us his word 
to, to use a, a, a mental image, the preacher is nothing more than a piece of paper upon which the word is written. If you obey the Bible, you're not obeying the book. You're not obeying this printed thing. You're obeying the revelation of God contained in those pages. When you obey your leaders and those given charge over you, you're not obeying me. You're obeying the Lord whose word I teach. James says not many should become teachers because of the judgment. He says we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now on the day of judgment, I'm going to face judgment for what I teach. Every sermon I've preached, every Bible study I've led, every casual conversation, every time I've, I've tried to, to explain something to somebody, everything I've done online, every email I, I've sent, we used to have these great email exchanges when Penny was in China. You've got to be very careful, extraordinarily careful, beyond careful not to mention anything because the government is so intrusive. And so she would say, I'm, I'm in the fourth part of the second part. And I would think, okay, it's the Gospel of John. The second part's the New Testament. The fourth part's the Gospel of John. And the eighth, so chapter eight, and it, we just did this code. It was, it was really kind of fun. It was like Christian James Bond. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm held, I'm, I will be held accountable for what I communicated to her as a teacher. I'll give an answer. Every word that left my mouth, we know all of us will be judged for what we say. I will face an additional stricter judgment. Stricter judgment, not just an additional judgment, but a tighter judgment for my teaching. It's why I work hard to, to do all, the best that I can to be accurate and to be true. And on the day that I give an account for my teaching, I'll find out what the result was. And that's what he's getting at toward the end of this verse 17. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The joy or the groaning is going to come in the day that I give an account. The, the joy and groaning is not that I teach truthfully. You don't have any control over that. Other than, I mean, you can pray for me, you can encourage me, you can correct me, but ultimately I stand before the Lord as to the truth of what I teach. The joy or groaning comes in the fruit. Now, you can plant something like arugula, I don't know why you would, but you can plant something like arugula or radishes and harvest in a couple of months. You can plant corn and harvest in four or five months, six months maybe. If you plant pineapple, it's going to take 18 months to two years to bear one fruit. And it'll produce maybe one or two more before the plant itself is dead. Do you know how long it takes for the seeds I plant to produce fruit? It takes until the day I'm judged. That's when I find out what the fruit was. And so, I don't know, I'm kind of speculating, but I imagine that the Lord will have me standing there in that position, and he will review everything I've ever said, and he will rebuke me for what I got wrong. And I, I pray to God there's not much. And then he will address what I got right. And when he addresses what I got right, I'll get to see the fruit. That means that maybe one by one you'll come up. 
and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll see if there's joy there. And the joy is that as I taught you the word, you heard, you went to it, you said, yes, that's right. I believe that. Lord, help me do that. And it had, it had a, a good result in your life. The groaning is if you looked at it and said, no, I'm not doing that. I've presented the word of God. I've, the, the Lord Jesus, who is Lord over the church, gave us his authoritative word. I've done what I can to be responsible, to share it with you accurately and clearly. And if you look at that and hear it and say, no, I don't like him. I refuse to believe what he says. I've, I've, I know that there will be people who do that because I've done that to people. I disagree. I don't like what that says. Tell you what, obey your leaders and submit to them is maybe right under Ephesians 5.22. Husbands or wives, submit to your husbands. That's like tough stuff. People don't like it. And so what you are to do is to let my accountability be with joy. And you do that by listening to the word, believing it, trusting it, committing yourself to the Lord and growing. So that not in two months or six months or 18 months, but in decades yet to come and eternity to come, I get to see this is the fruit. This is what happened as a result of what I taught. The really cool thing here, the really wonderful thing here, is that we get to play a part in one another's joy. My part in your joy is to teach you the word of your Lord so that you know him so that you can love him better, so that you can obey him more clearly, so that you can, you can follow him and entrust your life to him, so that you can have peace in those moments when the world is attacking, so that when the devil comes to you and tries to say, oh, you did this, you're a Christian, you shouldn't be doing that, how do you know you're a Christian? You've got the confidence to go back to the gospel and back to the word and to stand firm. That's my part in your joy. Your part in my joy is to let the word of God do its work in you so that at the end of your life and mine, we can both rejoice in the fruit of your life. As the chapter comes to a close from uh, verse 18 through the end, most of these words are are private words. They're they're personal words from, uh, from, I think Paul wrote this letter to those who are coming. But I want to focus just for a moment or two on the benediction in verses 20 and 21. Now, may the God of peace who brought you brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom glory be forever and ever. Amen. A benediction is not wishful thinking. It's not saying good luck. A benediction is a prayer report. Here's what I'm praying for you. Here's what I'm asking the Lord to do for you. And the beautiful thing about a a biblical benediction is that this biblical benediction was given by the Lord to the writer through the Holy Spirit and placed in the pages of Scripture so that we not only know what Paul was praying for the Hebrews, we know what the Lord is answering for them and for us. And what he's answering boils down to two things. 
equipping you with everything you need to do his will and working in you everything that pleases him. God has promised to, to equip you to do his will. So you can. So you can. That equipping almost never happens ahead of time. His equipping me to, to do his will isn't what he provided for, for me uh, almost 30 years ago now when I went back to school full-time and earned a master's degree. It, it's, that's not the equipping. The equipping is the work of the Holy Spirit in us to make us effective in our gifting. He's not going to give that to you in a box so you can stick it in your closet and pull it out in four years when you think it's necessary. He's going to meet you at the point of ministry and grant you that equipping in that moment. I have seen that over and over and over again. That in discussions with people, answering questions, counseling people, he brings to mind the scripture as I need it. He brings to mind the wisdom as I need it. He's going to equip you to do his will, so you can do his will through Jesus Christ. And he is going to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. He's determined to bring you to maturity in Christ. My, my earnest appeal to you is that you don't fight him, that you not resist him, because he knows how to break us. He knows how to take our, our rock-hard hearts, our, our titanium-hard hearts, and to break us. There's a, there's a statement, it might be in, in James, that says, if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. That is, if we'll come to the scriptures and we'll say, it says I need to do this and I'm not. And Lord, I acknowledge that, I confess that, and I ask for your help. Then we're not going to go through this conviction process and this breaking process. We remain proud in that area. If we remain unyielding in that area, we may find ourselves under the heavy hand of God for our good. That means we may grow. And I want, you to rem- I want to remind you, too, that there's no second-class Christians. There's no bench warmers. Not one of God's children is intended to be on the sidelines. He promises to equip us for what we need. He promises to transform us and to do in us what pleases him. So may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good that we need to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks for this book. We give you thanks for the richness of it. And we ask that you would encourage us today. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to guide us. Give us fearlessness regarding the world. Help us to bear the reproach Jesus bore and to do it gladly. Teach us, Lord, to glorify your name and to serve one another. And Lord, Help us to be in submission to your word, however it comes to us. Help us to be in submission to you, trusting you and relying on you. And we thank you for your love for us. And we ask for your blessing as you send us on our way. 
And in your precious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.